bittersweet, but nonetheless exciting to see what God will do in her and through her. So thanks for uh, being patient and just listening to her, uh, what she feels the Lord's calling her to do. And we trust the Lord will use her. So here we are in a series called what? Diagnosis. That's right. And you see the little 10 in the logo. Do you see that creative energy that Swain put into that logo? You're feeling it, right? You know you're going to grow because of that logo, right? Diagnosis, 10 questions to diagnose your spiritual health. We're, we're structuring the series around those questions. Last week, we raised the foundational question that's alluded to in the introduction to the book, but it's not really addressed head on. But we thought it necessary and good for us to raise this question. Before we ask anything about our spiritual health, We can't assume that there's life. So we asked the question last week, are you alive spiritually? Are you alive? Because spiritual health requires spiritual life. There's no point in measuring the health of a corpse spiritually, right? So to be worried or concerned about where we are in relationship to God and our health in our relationship with Jesus Christ, we first have to know and be assured of whether or not we are alive in Christ. And we saw last week in Ephesians chapter 2 that God has done an amazing work in Jesus Christ, looking at dead, undeserved sinners and raising us up with Him, seating us with Him, making us alive together with Jesus Christ, that life is found in Him. And so now we start our... 10-week series, really, by asking the first question. The question is this, do you thirst for God? Do you thirst for God? That in assessing your spiritual health, you should ask yourself the question, do you thirst for God? Psalm 63 is our text this morning. This is the passage we're going to take a look at to get at that question. Do you thirst for God? Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 11. Grab your Bibles. Let's dig in. Let's give God the attention He deserves in the midst of all the craziness of life. Let's let God's Word speak to us now and get at that question. Do you thirst for God? Psalm 63, 1-11. The psalmist says this, O God, You are my God. Earnestly I seek You. My soul thirsts for You. My flesh faints for You. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon You in the sanctuary, beholding Your power and glory. And because Your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. 
My soul clings to you. And your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. The grass withers and the flowers fade. But the word of our God abides forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. I'll never forget it. It had to be four or five years ago. You know, we wanted to be careful about Turkey Day. You can see I need to be more careful about Turkey Day these days. So we did what every healthy person does. We signed up for the turkey trot. Uh, Yes, we did. Our whole family signed up for the turkey trot. And, uh, you know, that was all five of us, including Silas. He was probably six at the time. We're in the city. We're running the turkey trot over its um, Schiller Park. It goes up a hill, right? It goes around and around up a hill. Come all the way back on the way down. Right? There's about 30 people there. So Silas is doing what every competitive person does. He's going, I got them. I got them. Her. No way. Yep. I got this. He looks at me at the start of the race. He says, Dad, I'm winning this. He's five. I'm like, okay. The kid at the bottom of the hill bolts, like, way ahead of everybody else. Is like, we got three miles, you know? So they're like, let's just get a nice pace going. Silas literally sprints a mile up the hill. And all of a sudden, I'm like, man, this kid's hauling way ahead of everybody. And, and all of a sudden, I look at him, and he's like, Dad. He, puts, he stops right here. I don't know if I can do this anymore. I'm so thirsty, he says. I'm like, you may be fast, but you're not wise. He bolted up there, and he, he caved. He was so thirsty. All he cared about, he could have cared less about the race. All he cared about was a drink. I can't do it, Dad. I'm so thirsty. Please get me a drink. David's not running a 5K here. But you might get the idea that he's running from people. You you look at verse 9. It's talking about those who seek to destroy my life. You know, he's... He's, people are seeking to destroy him, to, get, to kill him. Talk about people that are lying, right? The mouths of liars will be stopped. People are saying untrue things about him. He finds himself in the opening verses in a, in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So David's in a desert. He's being pursued by people who want to kill him. People that are saying things that aren't true about him. And guess what? David is thirsty. He's thirsty. But what's interesting about his thirst is he doesn't say anything about a thirst in the midst of that circumstance, a thirst for water. Yes, he's alluding to the fact that there isn't any water, and by implication you might say, yeah, he wants water. But really the experience of being in the desert creating in some ways, I'm sure, physical realities that he's not able to ignore. He's thirsty physically. But there's a deeper thirst that's going on in David's life. 
he says, My God, my, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. In the midst of this desert, it's becoming for him a metaphor, a very real experience, but a metaphor of a deeper thirst in his circumstance. He thirsts for water, I'm sure, but the thirst he's talking about here is deeper than that. He says, I'm thirsting for you, God. I'm desiring you. I want you, Lord. That's what I thirst for. I seek after you. I thirst for you. My flesh faints for you. That David in the midst of his circumstance, as difficult as it is, doesn't simply cry out for a cup of water or for a change in circumstance. He cries out out of a deep and profound sense of thirst for his God. David, the psalmist, thirsts for God. The psalmist desires God. You wonder, why? Why does David, in this moment, desire God? What is it about David in which he is crying out and longing for God? Why not water? Why not just simply a change in circumstance? Well, first of all, we see that David desires God because he knows God. The psalmist knows God. Don't miss that. You look at the language and it's, and it's very personal. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. You see a lot of pronouns there. Mine, yours, me, you. That language comes out of a personal relationship with God. So he, he desires God because he knows God personally. You are my God. There is a deeply personal relationship that David has with God. That's why he thirsts for him. He knows God. It's one thing to know a detail or a specific information. Like, I know that today's date is June 23rd. Right? But I can also say that I know Doreen. Those are two very different things when it comes to knowledge. I know something that is true. It's another thing to know someone closely, intimately. David desires God because he knows God personally. He also knows God objectively. He goes on to say that he's crying out to him. Verse 3, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. In the midst of this experience, I'm going to praise you because I know that your steadfast love is better than life itself. I know something about you, God. Your steadfast love. Don't miss that word. It's a, it's a very unique word that is all throughout the Old Testament. And that word gets at 
the revealed nature of God. The, the, who God has revealed himself to be. Right? Exodus 34. Where Moses says, I want to see your glory. Show me your glory. And, and, and finally, uh, in the, after a back and forth interaction, that's exactly what Yahweh, the Lord, does. And in the midst of that revelation, you get to know who he is. The Lord that is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and mercy. Right? That's who God is. And David knows who God is. David knows whom God has revealed himself to be in the word of God. He's the God of steadfast love. David knows God personally, and he knows God objectively. Even though in this moment, he might be going through an awful experience, he knows who God is. And so he thirsts for and hungers for that God. Very important that we have objective knowledge. Who is God? Whether or not I experience it or, or feel it in a moment, who is God regardless of what I'm going through? Whom he has revealed himself to be? He's a God of steadfast love. And that steadfast love is better than life. Even if I die in the desert, I still crave you. Because your steadfast love is better than life. He knows him objectively as he's revealed himself to be. Unless I overemphasize that, understand this. David knows, the psalmist knows God subjectively in his personal experience. He knows the Lord. He knows God. That's why he cries out and thirsts for him. It's a love that he's experienced. He knows God. God has been present and active in his life. It's not just something he reads in a book. It is something he reads in a book. And that is sufficient. But that, that, that love, that knowledge that he has read about is something that is subjectively weaved into the fabric of his life. He goes on to say, my soul will be satisfied with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed. And when I uh, um, meditate on you in the watches of the night. See, he's calling to mind a different experience in the past. He's calling to mind something that has taken place already in his life. I remember. In the midst of the desert, I remember. I call to mind and I meditate on those experiences. And here's what I remember. You have been my help. That's why he thirsts for God, because he knows God, and he knows God as an experience, and he calls to mind that, those experiences in which God has unwaveringly been at his side. You have been my help. That's what the psalmist knows and remembers. David says, he has helped me every single time. He has remained faithful to me in every circumstance. He has never left me alone. He has never let me down. He's always been there. He's always sustained me. And in the midst of this desert, I can call those memories of God's faithfulness to mine and say, yeah, 
It's you, God, I thirst in the midst of this. It's you that I hunger it's after. It's you that I need. Not just a drink. Not just safety from my enemies. But I need you. And I thirst for you. And I hunger for you. In this experience, all it has done is deepen my thirst and my hunger and my desire for you whose love is better than life. Whose knowledge of you is more satisfying than anything else that this world could offer. You see, knowledge of God, personally, objectively, subjectively, knowledge of God creates in us a thirst for God. Knowledge of God creates in us a thirst for God. So the question, do you thirst for God? Again, digging below the surface, we must answer the question, do you know God? Do you know God personally? Do you know God who He has revealed Himself in the Scriptures? Do you know God? Can you, can you look back on your life and catalog a collection of experiences that says, you have been my help. If you know that God, man, conjures up a very deep cry and thirst and hunger for God. When we know God, we thirst for Him. Not only that, we see language here that shows that the psalmist trusts God. Right? He's in the midst of a desert, but he's making statements about his future. Verse 5, my soul will be satisfied. As with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Verse 9, those who seek to destroy my life, they're going down to the depths of the earth. I know what's going to happen. I know what you have for me. Even though I don't feel it and experience the joys of it in this moment. I have a trust in you. I know what your word says about where you will take and how you will keep and preserve and protect your people. And I know, I know what happens ultimately to my enemies. I know what your word says about me as your child. So even as I'm thirsting for you and hungering for you in a dry and weary land where there's no water. I know this, that it's only a matter of time before my soul is satisfied, before I am full, before my enemies are, are, are cast aside, before my lips praise you, before, verse 11, the king will rejoice in God. The psalmist knows God and the psalmist trusts God. That's what the psalmist, that's what's undergirding all this desire and thirst. So my question for you is, do you trust God in the midst of your circumstance? Through every circumstance, no matter what it is, do you know God and do you trust God? Because if you do, when you know and trust God, you'll thirst for Him. It's the nature of 
that kind of relationship, especially as we sojourn and go through the experiences we have in this world while we wait for eternal glory. In the midst of this place, we hunger and we thirst for the God that we know and trust. So do you know God? Do you trust God? Do you desire Him? Do you thirst for Him? Does that genuinely describe the state of your soul this morning? If that's so, understand that 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 is a gift. It's a work of God in your heart. Because the scriptures teach that in our sin, we don't seek after God. We want nothing to do with God. Actually, we'll believe in anything except for God. Apart from a work of God by His Spirit, never run after God. You'll never thirst for God. You'll be abhorred at the knowledge of, the, of the, even the idea of God in needing Him. But if you do hunger for God, it's a work of the Holy Spirit. Even if you're in the midst of a dry place, even that, 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 that yearning and longing that your soul feels and crying out to God, that is a sign that the Spirit of God is at work in you. I'll never forget that. I think I've shared a couple times a conversation I've had with Bernie probably like six or seven years ago, where I looked at Bernie and I said, something's wrong with me. I'm, I'm miserable. And, and, I, and, I, and I don't really, I'm not really reading and praying as much as I should, and I'm miserable. He's like, exactly. That tells me that the Spirit of God is awakening within you a desire that can only be satisfied in the pursuit of God. If you are happy apart from a devotion and apart from consistent prayer and growing vibrance, if you are happy as a clam in the midst of struggling in those areas, I'd be really worried about you. But since you're miserable and going through so much turmoil as you wrestle with those things, that's great. Now you know where you need to go. And it provided such a boost of assurance and put me on another track. So if you're here today, and you're miserable in the midst of your, like, because you're, you're, you know that you're, that you're, that you're in some ways walking in a different path or ignoring the source of satisfaction. Take that as a sign of God's discipline and his love that he won't let you be happy in that state. You know where your soul will be satisfied. It's in the Lord. Turn to him. If you're, if you're finding yourself thirsting and crying out to God, It's a work of God in you by His Spirit. And Donald Whitney says that if you thirst for God, that it's a sign of your growth and your health. He says, be encouraged. Whatever else is transpiring in your Christian life, your soul thirst is a sign of soul growth. Soul thirst for God is a sign of soul growth in God. Be encouraged by that. And if you're not thirsting for God, like we've already said, it could very well be a a lack of knowledge of Him. So you need to just know God first. Know Him for who He is. Trust Him for who He's revealed Himself to be. Begin to integrate that truth into your life through obedience and running into the arms of Jesus Christ, through whom we know God. There's no other way to know God than through Jesus Christ. The perfect and full revelation of who God is, is Jesus Christ. And yet there may be some of you here today that you say, you know what, I do know God. 
And I do trust God. But I still struggle to thirst for Him. I would presume that that's probably the majority of the people here this morning. That again, these questions aren't here primarily to remove assurance about your standing before God. But really to help you grow and pursue a healthier relationship with God. So it's my assumption here that that most of us know God, trust God, but probably waver up and down and struggle with a consistent, sustained thirsting after Him. I could be wrong. But that would be my guess. So, you may be here today saying, I do know God, I do trust God, and yet my thirst is lacking or minimal. And you're asking why. Why don't I thirst for God to the extent that David seems to? What's wrong with me? Why is it that if I have the choice of checking my phone or reading the text, I tend to choose my phone nine times out of ten? What's wrong with me? What's going on in my life? Very important thing that I just want to address as quickly as I can, hopefully and as, as, as clearly as I can. Well, I want to recommend two books for you to grab and, and walk through uh, in, your, in, in the timing that makes sense to you. Books that have been helpful to me uh, over the years. One, and they're both written by Piper. You guys know I love Piper. He's been, in many ways, a, a father figure uh, from a distance, of course. Just getting at my heart so often. Two books. When I Don't Desire God, How to Fight for Joy. When I Don't Desire God, How to Fight for Joy. And also his book on prayer and fasting called A Hunger for God. So if you want to write those titles down, grab it. Helpful reads. You know, some people read Piper and they're like, I can't take this anymore. Fine. I'm like, this is the greatest thing I've ever read. Every time I pick up. Somewhere on the spectrum, hopefully it's helpful to you, okay? Here's what he says. He talks about two things that might be in the obstacle of your thirsting after God. Two things. Number one is idolatry. Idolatry. He says in his book, God's greatest adversaries are his gifts. God's greatest adversaries are his gifts. Good things given to us by God that become primary things that we go to hunger for, thirst for, apart from him. Elevating gift to the status of or above what? The giver. Something good God has given to us that we yearn for, we, our flesh faints for, that we want, that we desire, that we run to in our circumstances and in our struggles. But here's the one that I think hit me in the stomach. And you guys know I've been wrestling with these kind of things for quite some time now. He says this. He says, he talks about innocent delights. Somewhat similar, idolatry would almost be for the, someone who's worshiping a false god, like the unbeliever. So in some ways, maybe this does not perfectly uh, apply to you. But he talks about innocent delights. 
He says fasting and prayer is a way that we protect ourselves from the deadening effects of innocent delights and preserve the sweet longings of our homesickness for God. He's talking about the deadening effects of innocent delights. I wonder if some of us have a minimal thirst for God because we are now under the effect of being deadened. The deadening effects of innocent delights. He goes on to say, the pleasures of this life and the desires for other things, these are not evil in themselves. These are not vices. These are gifts of God. They are your basic meat and potatoes and coffee and gardening and reading and decorating and traveling and investing and TV watching and internet surfing and shopping and exercising and collecting and talking. And all of them can become deadly substitutes for God. Things we long for. Things we crave. Don Whitney talks about these very things when he says this. That all too often, even Christians are drinking too much from the desiccating fountains of the world and too little from the river of God. He goes on to say this, kind of bringing it all together. Too much attention to a particular sin or sins and or too little attention to communion with God inevitably shrivels the soul of a Christian. Too much of the uh, innocent delights that this world gives us, too much of God's gifts, too much of TV and internet and food and travel and shopping and Amazon and Facebook and Twitter, too much of all these other things basically shrivels the soul of the Christian. There's only too much desire and time and attention that we have. And so when there's little time, attention, devotion to the river of God, to the things of God, and too much time, attention to the gifts of God, to the, uh, to the del- um, innocent delights of this world, that the soul will shrivel. I think that he's onto something, especially for us in American suburbia. People have asked me over the years, What's the greatest challenge in church planting? What's the greatest challenge of reaching suburban families? First, I didn't know what to say. I'm like, man, I should have thought of this before. What's the biggest challenge that you have in reaching suburban families? Thought about it for a little bit. You know what my answer was? Suburban families. Suburban families the greatest challenge to reaching suburban families. See, that's the interesting thing, right? Is the greatest opportunity to reaching suburban families is what? Suburban families that are filled with God's Spirit. That's the greatest opportunity. That's that's the means by which whatever God's going to do in the world, He's primarily going to do through His people. If we're going to reach people, guess what we need? 
people. Holy Spirit indwelt, word proclaiming, people. People reach people. That's just the way God does it. That's the greatest opportunity that we have of reaching every man, woman, and child across the northern suburbs. You. All of Christ's people, to be fair. All of those who are filled with the Spirit, who proclaim the Word, who are connected in biblical community, in every gospel-preaching church in the northern suburbs. That's the greatest opportunity that we have. But on the flip side, the greatest challenge that we have is suburban families. That we can easily get caught up in the innocent delights. We can easily be caught up in the pleasures of the world, the substitutes that the world offers us, that in many ways even God gives to us, that aren't in and of themselves evil, but they begin to enamor us. And the momentary uh, uh, comfort that they give is so great in the midst of our struggles that we start running to them more and more and more, and we crave them more. And the next thing you know, years go by, and you say to yourself, when was the last time I fasted and prayed and read my Bible for more than five minutes in a car ride to work? The deadening effects of innocent delights. I think if we're struggling to thirst for God, it may just be that we're drinking too much from the wells of the world. That is numbing, numbing the effects of the fallen condition that we experience every single day. It ain't that bad. It ain't that bad. Life is good here, now. Why would I need God? Why would I thirst for God? Look at all the things I enjoy in this life. I think that's the struggle that many of us face. I know I do. I know I'm easily lured away from the things of God to the things of the world. Substitutes. The deadening effects of innocent delights. But those who know God and trust in God, the Spirit of God has a way of weaving experiences, of allowing you to get disappointed with the world to bring you back to a thirsting and a hungering for God. Maybe even now, as the Word of God is being preached in the context of corporate worship, the Spirit of God is is deepening your thirst and your hunger. That's what this is about. Deepening your thirst and your hunger for the living God. Prompting growth in your heart. I pray that that's happening. Maybe you're just simply asking a practical question. How do I find my satisfaction in God and how do I sustain that thirst for God? I've already said no and trust Him. Seems redundant, but we can't, can't move on from No and trust God. If you know and trust God, you'll be satisfied in God and you'll pursue Him. Second thing is meditate on God. Meditate on God. Whitney calls it Scripture absorption. Right? We, a lot of us read the Bible, but do we absorb it? Do we spend enough time thinking and meditating upon it that it's integrated into our perspective and our thoughts and our dreams and our hopes? Absorb Scripture, he says. 
George Mueller, at the age of 71 in the 19th century, is encouraging young converts, and he says this. He says, now I would give a few hints to my younger fellow believers as to the way in which to keep up spiritual enjoyment. It is absolutely needful. We should read through the scriptures consecutively and not pick out here and there a chapter. If we do, we remain spiritual dwarfs. I tell you so affectionately, for the first four years after my conversion, I made no progress. But when I regularly read on through the Bible with reference to my own heart and soul, I directly made progress. And then my joy and peace continued more and more. And now I've been doing this for 47 years. I have read through the whole Bible about 100 times, and I always find it fresh when I begin it again. Thus, my peace and joy have increased more and more. Meditate on Scripture. Know God. Meditate on God. Get in the Bible. Spend time there every day. Give it your full attention. It will satisfy your thirst for God, and it will deepen your thirst for God. It'll keep you coming back. I need more. I need more of that. When you see it integrated into your life, give me more Scripture. Give me more of God. Third, pray to God. Prayer, communication with God. William Law says this, Prayer is the nearest approach to God, the highest enjoyment of Him that we are capable of in this life. For those of us who neglect the duty of prayer, we are missing a very real joy and satisfaction. So we pray to satisfy our souls and to sustain a deepened thirst for God. Number four, we live in biblical community. Piper talks about this in his, uh, when I don't desire God. He's given all this, this encouragement. Read your Bibles, pray, sing, all these things, right? And he says, oh, and by the way, do all of that in the context of the people of God. Because you can't sustain and fight for joy alone. We talk about this all the time. Why membership in a local church is absolutely essential and also pivotal and crucial for your growth. You are not alone, and you cannot sustain a thirst in God alone. You need other fellow believers in Christ to sustain that. You need to submit to elders who shepherd you faithfully, who watch over your lives, who love you affectionately with the love of Christ, deacons who serve you well, members who are interconnected, who are doing this with you, who you invest in, and who invest in you. Reading, praying, worshiping, singing together as one body in Christ. You will not sustain a thirst in God for God in isolation. It will die out and shrivel. And if it doesn't, I question whether or not it is the God of the Bible or if it's some other God that you have made up and called him Jesus. Because the God of the Bible connects his people, grows his people, sustains his people in the context of a local church. Live it out together. It's a wonderful thing. Sometimes it's awful, right? 
Listen, man, hanging out with people, they drive you crazy. They sin against you. They let you down. They disappoint you. You say, the last thing I need to do, do is go to missional community tonight to be happy. I get it. Ah, uh, We understand even all of that is how God deepens thirst. Anything else is superficial. Anything else is sentimental. It will not last. But the difficulty of dealing with difficult people is how God does it. Deep, Lord, I need you in this. Fill me. I'm empty. I beat that horse. I'm done. And last, beware of substitute satisfiers. And you know how you beware those things? Back to the beginning. Know God, trust God, meditate on God, pray to God, live it out in biblical community. That's what keeps your focus clear. That's where you go, oh, no, no, substitute. That's a gift of God that I can enjoy, but I don't rely on it, not ultimately. Oh, no, that's the world. I know that because I've been meditating on God, I've been praying to God, and my brother and sister in Christ have told me the truth about what God says in His Word. They've called to mind and encouraged me in the things that, that He's been doing in my life that I didn't even notice. The elders have been preaching the gospel. I've been coming week in and week out and hearing the preached Word. Ah, yeah, that's a substitute. I'm not giving my heart to that. I'm not going to buy the lie of the enemy that that will satisfy me and give me joy. It won't. Only God does satisfy in that way. I pray today that your love for, hunger for, thirst for, desire for, delight in, satisfaction is alone found in Christ and that it may have been minimal when you came in, but now it's deepened. And I pray that you run out of this room not just looking for a place to eat lunch, but a place to find time with God and pray. Because he alone satisfies. Amen? The more you go here, the more you want this. Let's go there and trust God together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these people here, your work in them. I pray that you would deepen their hunger and thirst for you, that you would satisfy them in Christ. If there's anybody here today that doesn't know God, that has not trusted God, that has heard about a God that loves them, that, that has has uh, sent his son into the world to die in their place uh, in Jesus Christ, that they would, they would turn to him now, that they've recognized that they've trusted in the things of this world, that they've worshipped false gods. In the midst of their emptiness, they would turn to Jesus even now. And I pray that every believer here would continue to find their satisfaction in you. And those that are struggling in a dry and desolate place, I pray you fill them. I pray you fill them with the Spirit and, and with a deep hunger for Christ in His Word, in prayer, and in His church. Lord, this is a work that you must do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.